We're going to continue our series today called The Church Refocused. It's from Revelation chapter 1 through 3. This is part 4 of five parts. So I encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's also on page 849 if you use the Bridge Bible. When you think back to the first century, the first century church was born into uh, an environment steeped in sexual immorality. And the 21st century church continues today uh, in a culture steeped in sexual immorality. A study in 2006 reported that 29% of Americans have sex on their first date. Um, The average number of sexual partners that the American male has is 20 in a lifetime. The average number of sexual partners that a woman, a female has in America is six. 65% of American teenagers have sex before they graduate from high school. In a study uh, by Today's Christian Woman, 34% of female readers admitted that they intentionally go online to view pornography. In December 2009, the Family Research Council released results of a new study exploring the effects of pornography on marriage, children, and individuals. It noted that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having excessive interest in pornographic websites. 68% of the divorce cases involved one spouse having an affair of somebody they've connected or reconnected with online. Pat Fagan of the Family Research Council stated that pornography corrodes the conscience, promotes distrust between husbands and wives, and debases untold thousands of young women. His ultimate conclusion is that pornography is quietly a family killer. You as a Christ follower live in a culture that is steeped in sexual immorality. We face the same question that the church faced in the first century. Will we bring the culture into the church and into our lifestyle, or will we live differently? Today, we have a chance to refocus and recalibrate with our walk with Christ. In 95 AD, Jesus Christ called upon the Apostle John to write down some things that he had seen and heard, and specifically to write letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. In Revelation chapter 1, we saw already Jesus Christ, Jesus in his glory. And uh, God wants us to have a picture of things to come. And God wants us to have a picture of who Jesus is since he has been resurrected from the grave. And he is the Lord of the churches, and he is the one who will come. The ultimate revelation in Revelation 19, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, seven letters, seven churches, and that's where our focus is right now. We've already talked about two letters to two churches. We've talked about the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you follow on your outline in your program, uh, the the first one we're going to talk about today is to the church that dabbles in compromise. That's verses 12 through 17. To the church that dabbles in compromise. The church is Pergamum. Uh, Look at Revelation chapter 2, the first part of verse 12. And it's written to the angel of the church 
in Pergamum write, write these things. And let me just remind you, um, to the, it's to the angel. And the word angel, angelos, the Greek word, can be used of supernatural heavenly angels like the angel Gabriel. That word also, it means messenger, can be used of human messengers like the John the Baptist was the messenger who went before the Lord to prepare the way for the, before the Lord. That's the word used to describe John the Baptist. It's also used to describe John the Baptist's disciples. They were sent ahead of him, messengers, angels were sent ahead of John, and they were his disciples. The same was true for Jesus. Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him, angels, and they were his disciples that he sent ahead of him. So it can be used of uh, human messengers, and I personally take that that's exactly what the reference is here. It's to the angel, the messenger, who is probably the pastor. And remember, John was on the isle, the island of Patmos. That was a prison colony for the Roman Empire, and he had been arrested as a Christian for following Christ and put there. And uh, so he is on the on an island, and I believe God has sent seven messengers to the island to receive these letters to meet with John. These were churches that John oversaw. He was like an overseer, leader of these churches. And uh, Pergamum was a wealthy city, a very religious city. Uh, there were five major temples there, pagan temples, where people came to worship. This is real stuff. You know, this isn't just like, oh, there's a nice monument over there. There were people who really worshipped here. And it was uh, some crazy stuff. Uh, there, was a, there was a temple to the goddess Athena, uh, Asclepius, savior god of healing. And there was really some supernatural stuff going on there. There was some medicine being practiced, and then there was some supernatural stuff being practiced, and there were some people actually getting healed. And guess what? It wasn't from the true and living God. It had another source. Um, Dionysius, god of the royal kings, was very popular, and Zeus. Um, Pergamum boasted of the largest library in the ancient world, over 200,000 volumes, until Julius Caesar gave gave them to Cleopatra, and they were gone. Um, Let me uh, show you the map that we looked at last time. And, uh, you know, here you have the kind of the ancient world, uh, Mediterranean Sea. See the Isle of Patmos? That's where uh, John is and he's in prison. He can't go anywhere. He's not free. And we started with Ephesus um, inland. Once upon a time, that was the seacoast. And um, we went to Smyrna. Ephesus was the church that lost its first love. Then we went to Smyrna, the suffering church. And today we we go north uh, 65 miles to Pergamum on the the west coast. We're going to come back to Thyatira uh, sh- shortly. So that's uh, the seven churches. Every, every one of the churches, if we look at verse 12, has the character of Christ. Each letter has a description. The description comes from chapter 1 in this vision that the apostle John had of Jesus, verses 9 through 18, chapter 1. So look at verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. This is Jesus. Jesus is saying these words. He's speaking to this church. These are the words John is to write down. He's the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. And that is from verse 16 in chapter 1. The sharp double-edged sword speaks of the word of God. 
And there are times where images of the, the, this sword comes out of the mouth of Jesus, especially Revelation 19, a very powerful one. It's double-edged, sharp. It has, it's the word of God. It has the power of life and the power of death. It holds the words of life. It holds words of judgment. It has the power of eternal salvation and the power of eternal death. And Jesus speaks these words to this church. Verse 13, the commendation. Typically, each letter has a commendation from Jesus. He commands them. Look at verse 13. I know where you live. Remember, Jesus is the one, chapter 1, walking among the lampstands, the churches. Lampstands hold up, are for light. They hold lamps. And we already, Jesus is the one who tells us that the lampstands refer to the churches. They are to hold the light of the world, spiritual light. That's what the job of the church is. He's walking among the lampstands, and he says, I know, I know where you live. I know what's going on. I know what you've been through. I see it every day. I see the struggles you have. I know where you are, where Satan has his throne. This is a very unique, unusual description here. This is powerfully dark. Satan has a real stronghold. I would imagine that means that Satan himself was present, not necessarily 24-7, but it was a place that he hung out. Very strong, powerful, very dark, very demonic. And it had to do with the the pagan worship that was happening there. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan had, what a place to start a church. I'd like to be the church planner here. I know where Satan has his throne. You remain true, yet you remain true to my name. What a testimony to this group. You did not renounce your faith in me. Um, Emperor worship was really popular uh, during this time. And people were asked to say, Caesar is God or you die. And uh, you did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, Pergamum, where Satan lives. Tough times for the early church. And there's a group that have hung in there and have been faithful to the Lord Jesus and been faithful to the true and living God. Jesus commends them. He knows. He knows their struggles. He knows their hearts. He knows what's going on. And he commends them. Um, then the condemnation comes, verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because they're not perfect. But this isn't necessarily every person in the church. There was a group in there that were a faithful remnant who hung in there, who took God seriously. But the church also waffled, and there were some that got way off track. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So there's some false teaching going on in the church in Pergamum. Christianity, Christians who are getting off course here and a reference to the teaching of Balaam. And there's a spiritual, there's an an analogy here going back to um, the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 25. Balaam was supposed to be a prophet from God. He was really kind of a false prophet. And he was enlisted by Balak, the king of 
Moab to um, derail the Israelites, to curse them, to get God to do something and judge the Israelites. And he couldn't. He couldn't, couldn't speak the words. He couldn't curse Israel. However, he came up with a way to sort of uh, engage Balak and the Moabites to um, deceive the Israelites. And so he instructed the king of Moab, Balaam instructed the king of Moab to have the young women of Moab to sexually seduce the young men of Israel. And that's exactly what they did. And they began to intermarry into the Moabites. And uh, they also took on the false gods and became worshipped idols. And so major accomplishment for Balaam. He deceived God's people. They get involved in sexual immorality. And then they become, they worship idols. Way off course. And yes, God disciplined them. He brought judgment on them. This is happening in the church. No, it's not Balaam. No, it's not the Moabites. It's uh, an engagement in sexual immorality in the church and an engagement in uh, idolatry. And so there was some kind of teaching, and this is really easy in the first century, when the pagan worship was so popular. It was so much a part of everyday life. And there were temple prostitutes, male and female. And it was just like it's what the good old boys did, is went down to the temple to worship and reenact ancient fertility rites. And you could have sex and have it be religious. And it just immersed the culture. And then this little church grew up out of there, and they're going to try to make a difference, and yet this is everyday stuff. And so there was a group in the church who were trying to um, derail the church by participating in some of, uh, you know, what's going out on the street and um, also engaging in meals, celebrations, food, dinners, where they were honoring, worshiping idols. So much confusion going on. And they were doing this sort of in the name. This will make you more spiritual if you not only do your Christian thing, but also add to this and engage with some of these other religious practices. And that was allowed with Greek Gnosticism in the first century. There were, there were a couple of radical forms of Greek Gnosticism, Gnosticism philosophy, and some were like um, all, everything physical is evil. And so uh, it, that impacted the church in Corinth because they had... Husbands and wives stopped having sexual relations because it, they believed it was evil, and that was Greek Gnosticism, and which was not true. The other side of it was licentiousness or just, hey, everything's free because nothing you do in the body impacts your spiritual life. That was Greek Gnosticism trying to be hooked up with Christianity as if, hey, whatever you do with your body, it's okay. It's not going to hurt you spiritually. And, and that was a worldview that was creeping in to Christianity. Uh, verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, this was a problem in the church at Ephesus. We've already seen this in chapter 2. And, G- and Jesus says, I hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. And so did the, the church at Ephesus. And so Jesus praises them because they uh, don't go for this. But the church at Pergamum suffers. They 
they, they fall into the trap. And um, we talked about this briefly, the practice of the Nicolaitans. That was another false teaching that was coming into the church. It was first century. It was uh, the, the Gnosticism. Nicholas and his followers were bringing Greek philosophy into the church and this view of um, liberality in sexuality. And it was another way of bringing sexual immorality into the church. Uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, correction, verse 16. And finally, we get to the correction. He says, repent, therefore. Repent, change. Stop, change. Repent. And to repent requires confession, acknowledge, and then a, a turn. Repentance is you're going in one direction and you stop. Got to reevaluate, recalibrate, turn, head back in the other direction. That's what Jesus is asking his church. Remember, there's a faithful group in the church and then there's a group that's sliding along. They're compromising. So you repent therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you. Suddenly I will come to you and will fight against them. Not against everybody, but against them, those who are following the teaching of the Nicolaitans and those who are following the teaching of Balaam. And he said, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's a picture of Revelation 19 where Jesus comes in judgment. And he's, he's giving a warning. The challenge comes in verse 17. Each church has a challenge, remember. Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, do you have an ear? Do you hear? Do you hear what I'm saying? Remember, to hear wasn't just to hear the vibrations of the sounds of the words. To hear meant hear it, understand it, incorporate it into your life and change. Hear meant to obey. That's what Jesus was asking. He's saying, he was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not just to the church at Pergamum. This is for all the churches, and this is for us. This is for us. Do you hear? Jesus cares a lot about our lifestyle. Jesus knows those of us who are walking with God, and he knows if the, those who are struggling and those of, the, those of us who are drifting. And he's giving us, this is a chance to refocus, chance to recalibrate, chance to get back on, uh, back on track. To him who overcomes, John chap, uh, 1 John chapter 4, a believer in Christ, to him who overcomes, I will, give, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. He said, I will give some of the hidden manna. Manna was what, God fed the Old Testament Israelites in the desert. In John chapter 6 and verse 47, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Pretty strong theme in the Gospel of John. Next verse, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give 
for the life of the world. Jesus is talking about he who overcomes, he will give um, that relationship with Christ eternally, um, the hidden manna. And he says, I will also give him a white stone. That's a tough one. There are many views about what this white stone is. And I can say, gee, I'm not sure. But it likely refers to um, a white stone given in verdict, in a verdict that provides pardon from death. And there's going to be a name written on it. And it's a name I can't tell you the answer to. But it's a name that you're going to value when you receive the white stone. So the church at Pergamum was the church that dabbled in compromise. It's really easy to dabble with compromise, to dabble with our world and, you know, to put up with what we see and hear on TV as if this is sort of the norm or what we hear in the dorm as if this is sort of the norm for uh, our lifestyle. The second church uh, we're going to look at today, verses 18 through 29, to the church that advocates tolerance. The first church just dabbled. This church advocates tolerance. Tolerance is like the, the greatest modern virtue of the day. It's like the most important virtue of our world. And Christians, you're the worst at it. And um, this was a church that advocated tolerance. The church, verse 18, the church is Thyatira. And again, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. So I believe this is the pastor, the human messenger. And um, Thyatira was, a, was not a large city. It wasn't as large as the first three cities that we've looked at. It was strong in textiles in the ancient world and leather and dyes. Lydia, if you know from the first century, was a seller of purple and Lydia was from Thyatira, and Lydia helped start the church in Philippi, and Paul led her to Christ. Uh, p- pagan worship in Thyatira included Apollo and Diana. Diana was the uh, Roman name for the Greek goddess of Artemis, which is that famous one that practiced sexual immorality at the temple with temple prostitutes, male and female. And so let's look at the map and just be reminded where it's located. So we started with Ephesus, then we went to Smyrna, then we jumped up to Pergamum, and now we're dropping back down to Thyatira. There's a kind of a cycle here. And so uh, this is a church at Thyatira. The character of Christ is in verse 18, and the words of Christ, uh, let's look at that. These are the words of the Son of God. This is about as explicit as you get that Jesus is the speaker here. And it's like he's playing the trump card here, and he's using this name, the Son of God. In case you're not clear on who's speaking, it is the Son of God. And these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And we've seen this in chapter 1, this image of Jesus His eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes are penetrating. His eyes see. His eyes are all-knowing. His eyes uh, understand motives. Nothing goes past Jesus. And he sees the church. And he's seen the good things. And he sees uh, their failures and their weaknesses. Um. And then uh, 
His, his feet are like burnished bronze, and that's a picture we had in chapter 1. It's a picture of, of uh, standing in judgment. It's a picture of Jesus standing in, in judgment. Commendation, verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. He commends them. There is a group in the church who are holding strong. There, there's a group in the church that gets it. And Jesus says, I know. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I've seen your love. I've seen you trust me. I've seen your faith at work. I've seen your acts of kindness. I've seen your service. I've seen your perseverance, how you've hung in there, how you've experienced persecution. And it's amazing. You are now doing more than you did at first. When you got started and you had that first love, you begin to have an impact and you're doing more than you were doing then. And yet the church is full of turmoil. There is the good. That's the commendation. The condemnation comes in verses 20 through 23. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Jezebel was a woman in the Old Testament who was married to King Ahab. And they were very far from God and they sought a lot to lead Israel astray. And there was a woman um, in this church, the church at Thyatira. And she was, her name could have been Jezebel, but she certainly had that character of Jezebel. And she called herself a prophetess. So she said she was a spokesman for God. She said she had the gift of prophecy and that she had words that came from God. However, she was misleading. By her teaching, she misleads my servant into sexual immorality. Do you see how big a problem this was in the first century? Sexual immorality in the church. People confused about this. People confused about God's ideal of one man and one woman given in marriage, freely and totally committed for life. And God says, I bless that relationship. And he said, outside of that relationship, I want you to, be, uh, to seek purity and, and uh, to avoid a sexual life outside of marriage. No, it's off limits. Those were God's standards. They were always God's standards. And the church started well and then... Uh, drifted and got off track. Um, it was just, it was, by some, it was just viewed as okay to have uh, sex with pagan temple prostitutes and to uh, eat meals with, um, in, 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 a, in a temple kind of sacrifice where food was sacrificed to idols. And to, to, these were meals that, like, we have a special meal. We call it communion, where we take the bread and the cup and we honor Jesus. They participated in meals that honored foreign gods. And they were being led astray. That's the point that Jesus is make, making here. 
Um, verse 21, I have, um, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. We don't know what, what this means. We don't know what happened, but Jesus had communicated uh, in the church with this woman about her being out of line and out of place and that she should repent, and she was unwilling. Next slide. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. She got off track in the bedroom. I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent and change, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. They may be actual literal children, more likely. They refer to those who have taken her teaching and are her followers in the church. Then all the churches, here's the reason, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This was going to be an example. Then all the churches will know. I will strike this woman down. I will strike down her followers. This is real live discipline on the church. Physical discipline on the church. This stuff really happens, and it did happen. Um, let me remind you of a case. There's a couple of cases. One is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and let me just set the backdrop here. In the church, there was a case of sexual immorality where a man in the church, a believer, was sleeping with his dad's wife. And it was the man's stepmom. She's probably young, and um, dad's probably older. And so he's shacking up with stepmom. And Paul has something to say about this. He says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, church, when you're, when you're gathered together, and I'm with you in a spirit, this is church discipline. And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan. Those are strong words. Hand this man, this disobedient man, who's involved in sexual immorality, hand him over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What is he saying here? Because people, they hear that and they get confused real quick. Hand this man over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, it's not about this man losing his salvation. He's saved already eternally. He's been handed over to Satan. What does that mean? In the church, there's protection. In the church, Satan can't get at a believer when he's connected to the church as easily. He can, but not as easily. But if you excommunicate that man and kick him outside of the church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this man's now on his own. And he doesn't have the protection of Jesus Christ in the church. Now he's over in Satan's domain because Satan rules the world right now, and it's not been reclaimed yet. And uh, out there, if Satan wants to take his life, he can. He's out of the church. And if he dies physically, okay, let it be. Let that get people's attention. And the idea would be if you excommunicate this guy, he's going to come to repentance. And apparently this man did in 2 Corinthians. Uh, he did come to see. That his sinful nature be destroyed, his body is going to be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. He's not losing his salvation, but this is real church discipline. It might, it might involve physical death for a believer, 
That can happen. 1 Corinthians 11 is another example. The church of Corinth had its set of problems too. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This was a case where the church was abusing communion. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. They weren't examining their hearts. They weren't right with God. They were going through the motions. Some were coming early and eating all the food. Some were coming early and getting drunk before everybody else got there. And um, so there was a judgment on the church. Verse 30, that is why many among you are weak, physically weak, consequences for abusing the Lord's table. Some of you are sick, physical illness for abusing the Lord's table. And number of you have fallen asleep, not fallen asleep in church because the sermon was long, but they felt that it was physical death. It was a punishment, a discipline on the church. They didn't lose their salvation. God just took them home early, get them out of the way. He can do that. Um, the correction, verses 24 and 25, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to her teaching, and have not, that's Jezebel's teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Uh, the idea that there was teaching uh, by Jezebel that the way you really go deep spiritually is you've got to get involved in these other things. You've got to broaden your view. Christianity is too narrow. You've got to broaden your view and bring in these other teachings, and you can go deeper. And Jesus says, um, those of you who, who, um, who didn't go this direction, who do not hold to her teaching, I will not impose any burden on you. You're safe. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Hang in there. Stay the course. Be faithful. This is to the faithful group, the faithful remnant in the church. Verses 26 through 29, the challenge to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Verse 27, this is from Psalm 2.9. He will rule them with an iron scepter. This refers to the Messiah, Jesus. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is going to be judgment at the end. Just as I have received authority from my father. And so Jesus says, if you overcome and you do my will, I will give you authority to rule with me when my kingdom comes. And um, that happens in Revelation 20, by the way. So, and then verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Oh, I forgot 28. I will give him the morning star. Boy, that's a hard one too. I should just skip that one. Jesus is the morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. And he says, you're going to be with me in my glory. You're going to appear with me. Morning star comes um, right after the darkness. Now, all the darkness of the book of Revelation, the morning star will appear, and you will appear with him if you hold fast. He who has an ear. So the question is, do you hear? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? How important it is to walk with him, to stay close, to hang tough? not to drift. Um, just as we close, uh, th- this is a time to just to think and recalibrate. That's what, refocus, recalibrate. Let's get back to some of the basics. And the first passage I want us to see is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. Are you drifting? 
Are you in neutral? Are you drifting? There's only one way to go is go forward with Christ. Don't drift. Um, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, this is the Old Testament law, when God gave the Ten Commandments, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. We can't escape. This is, how can we, how can we drift? Don't drift, our writer tells us. First Thessalonians. Uh, so first application here, uh, don't drift in your spiritual life, okay? Stop drifting. First, First Thessalonians chapter 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, not like the worldview of the 21st century culture in America. Pursue purity. Don't get sucked into the culture's view of sexuality. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart for him, that you should avoid, abstain, not go there towards sexual immorality, that each of you, each person in this room should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not like our culture. So pursue pursue purity. Don't drift. Pursue purity. Lastly, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. New American says, study to show yourself approved of God. A workman, a student of the word who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. We can avoid so many problems by knowing what the scripture says. And the idea of being in the word every day or being in the word, I'm not being legalistic here, being in the word regularly for you. The idea of cleansing your soul, refreshing your mind, staying clear on what the important things are and able to see, hey, that's, that's off the course here. The early church lost that. The church today loses it too. And here's a chance to recalibrate, uh, get back into the word, allow God's word to be your authority. So I want to pray. And uh, as, as we do, let's just, let's just think about some of these things. Bow in prayer with me. Father, I just thank you uh, for the challenges that you gave to the early church and to the churches in Revelation. And um, they are so important to us today to be reminded of. And I just want to challenge us to stop drifting. Are you drifting? You need to just to gather your spiritual wits and take some action to get back on course, to do some things that are going to cause your spiritual life to grow. Maybe you need to get in a growth group and you've been putting that off. Maybe you need to pursue purity. Maybe you've been struggling with impure thoughts or an impure lifestyle. Maybe you need to Get back, pursue purity. And lastly, maybe you just need to get back into the word. Is that, is that what God wants you to do?
We just need to get back on a growth track. Maybe you need help with understanding Scripture. There's lots of ways to do that with friends, with groups, Sunday morning. And you'll be amazed how much you can learn just by reading yourself. Father, thanks for your word. And encourage us all, help us all be the people you want us to be for Jesus' sake. Amen.